I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Uh, If you're following along in a pew Bible, you can find that printed on page 947. If you're following along in your bulletin, you can find the text printed there on page 9. It's a much shorter passage this week than we've been looking at the last few times as we worked our ways through chapters 9 through 11. But before we consider verses 1 to 2 of Romans chapter 12, uh, I was wondering if you've ever experienced the Sunday to Monday gap. The Sunday to Monday gap. It's a, it's a disconnect between what happens on Sunday as we gather here for worship as God's people, as we hear wonderful things about God's mercy and his love and his grace, and then your alarm goes off on Monday morning, and it's the relentless day in, day out, uh, what often can feel like drudgery of our Monday to Saturday lives. Um, The grind of work, work, work. Uh, The relentless schedule of school and assignments. The never-ending chores, it seems. As soon as you clean one thing, something else is dirty, or that very same thing is dirty or broken. Uh, Caring for young people, caring for aging relatives, or going to doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment, meeting after meeting. You wake up, your day is filled with these things, you go to sleep, you repeat, and then Sunday you come here, and it's a little bit different. (laughs) And then Monday comes again. Well, that's the the Sunday to Monday gap. And and I don't know how intently uh, you feel that or experience that. I think it's all of our experience to some extent. But Paul's letter to the Romans, like the rest of the New Testament, remind us that this gap between Sunday and Monday is not because what we do on Sunday is irrelevant to the rest of the week. It's because we often fail to see how interconnected what we're doing right now is with the Monday through Saturday uh, things of life. And so our passage this morning really helps close that gap. It's foundational for us as we think about the Christian life. It shows us, uh, as Paul gets very practical, uh, it shows us how these mercies that we've been considering, and if you think back of, I mean, all of Romans 1 through 11 has been about God's mercy. But then especially as we've been going through chapters 9 to 11, where Paul is zooming out and he's plumbing the depths of God's sovereign plan to time and time again show mercy upon mercy to people who are contrary sorry, and disobedient. Wow, that's weird. My ears must have changed during the week. So my ear shape. There we go. There we go. Ah, I feel better. Everyone good? Um, Romans 9 through 11, mercy upon mercy to disobedient people. Um, But then, Paul, as he shifts into chapter 12, he takes us right away into the reality that those very same mercies that God is sovereignly outworking in history apply immediately to our Monday through Saturday life as well. In fact, all of our life as believers is really what we could call the mercy-driven life. And that's what we'll see today in our passage in Romans 12, 1 and 2. So let me read our passage, and then we'll pray, and then we'll take a look at at what it says and what that means for us. This is God's word from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is his good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help once more as we come to your word. We pray that you would help us to see the wonder of how your mercy is shaping us and with us each and every moment of every day in everything that we do. We ask for your mercy and grace now that you would give us faith to believe what your word says is true, that by your spirit you would help our minds even today to be renewed and that you would be transforming us more and more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, as we look at these uh, two short verses, we'll find that they're they're packed with all kinds of of meaning and application, and we'll walk through them um, according to three points. Uh, The first is embodied worship. Um, Sorry, I'm going to back up again. We're going to look at the mercy-driven life, and as we do, we see that it involves three things. One is embodied worship. Second, it involves inner transformation and thirdly, it involves mercy dependence. And so we'll, we'll look at those three things, embodied worship, inner transformation, and mercy dependence. Well, as I, as I mentioned before, Paul is coming down from these heights of God's love for his people that he explains in chapter 8 of Romans, and then the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God's plan. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he comes crashing in to the daily lives of of all who are part of God's saving plan in Christ. And what he explains, first of all, is that this mercy-driven life is shown in embodied worship. This mercy-driven life is shown in embodied worship. In verse 1 there, Paul makes this appeal, and he speaks to them all. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, and in light of what he said, Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of people, men and women, who have been brought together by the saving work of Christ, and he appeals to them by the mercies of God. And really, what the language there is is doing is it's saying that God's saving mercies that Paul has been talking about, God's saving mercies are appealing to them through the words of the Apostle Paul. And what he's going to unpack is there's this new way to live in light of the very mercies of God in your everyday life, in your home, at work, in the marketplace, as the people are going about in their life and in Rome, Paul is saying the mercies of God shape all of that. And he begins by saying something that would actually be very strange for them to hear and would have been so different from everything that was on all the self-help books in the chapters of their Barnes & Noble, or the shelves of their Barnes & Noble those days. He says, present your bodies. Present your bodies. They would say, wait, what? Our bodies? These, These weak things? These tombs that are just kind of holding us down from the enlightenment that we need to attain. You see, just like in our day, back in their day, there was this tendency to put religion into this inner category. 
isn't the real stuff, isn't the deep stuff of the Christian life, those inner spiritual things? And isn't the physical not as important? Isn't the physical just something that we just have to endure until one day we're rid of these weak and decaying bodies? And Paul says right from the beginning, no, you are both body and soul. And your body is the site of something amazing. God loves your body. That could sound strange, but it's true. He made it, and he will glorify it one day. And what Paul is saying here is, as, as we think about how the mercies of God affect us, he's saying this wonderful truth. Everywhere your body goes, everything your body does is an opportunity to present worshipful sacrifice to God. That's a pretty amazing thing. And he switches then to this idea of sacrifice, and he uses three words to describe this sacrifice that our bodies are able to be presented as. Three words there that are all connected to it. First, it's, it's living. It's a living sacrifice. And that, at, a, at its base level, is really just emphasizing the continual nature of it in contrast to an Old Testament sacrifice or the kinds of sacrifices that were happening all the time all around the people at Rome as sacrifices were being made to various gods, the animal would come living and it would be offered as a sacrifice and then its life would be over. But in contrast to that, we are continually able to be presented as sacrifices to God. And so living emphasizes the continual nature of the sacrifice, but it it also emphasizes the heavenly nature of the sacrifices that we are. We are now alive. We are now living, Paul has been saying, by Christ's resurrection power. And our bodies are now animated by the heavenly life of Christ that has been brought into us by the Spirit. And so we're this living sacrifice, but then also holy and acceptable to God. Holy and acceptable to God. These words really call to mind for us when we're reading through Leviticus and passages in the Old Testament, how much the Old Covenant sacrifices had to meet a certain standard, right? They had to be without spot or blemish. And then when they were offered up in faith, it was a pleasing aroma. They were acceptable to God. But when Paul says that now our bodies are living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable, he's explaining that now through the work of Christ, we have been made what those sacrifices were pointing to. We are now holy to God. We are set apart for his purposes in the world. And we are now acceptable to him. We've been washed in the blood of Christ. We are welcomed as his children. And Paul is saying that now as we live lives in this world, they can be lived in such a way that offer a pleasing aroma to God himself in our embodied existence. Do you see what's happening there? Now our bodies... Every place they go and everything we do with them can be offered as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. That's pretty amazing. It goes far beyond just Sunday, doesn't it? 
Well, Paul says at the end of verse 1 that presenting our bodies as sacrifices to God is actually our spiritual worship. It's a worshipful sacrifice that's taking place. That term there translated spiritual, it's a tricky term. And the reason it's tricky is it, it, it's used to speak of kind of two different things. And theologians go back and forth, which, which one do we pick? On the one hand, it's used most often to speak of what's reasonable or logical or fitting. You may have heard, I believe it's the King James that says, which is your reasonable service, right? And it's picking up on that use of that term. It's, it's reasonable, it's logical, it's fitting. But then in some Jewish writings, it was also used as spiritual for the real heart that lies behind the sacrifice. You can offer this kind of physical sacrifice, but there's also this spiritual nature of genuine worship that's done in faith. And so we often feel like we have to pick between the two. Why pick between two good things, right? I say we just take both of them, and other people agree with me, but I think it could be best understood as both. And what that means is, at the end of the day, it's this, that offering our bodies as this sacrifice to God is the worship that you were made for. It's true spiritual worship that is perfectly fitting and perfectly a reasonable response to God's continual mercy. It's true worship and it's in accord with all that God has done in his mercy for us. Do you hear how encompassing all of that is. You know, we gather together on Sundays for the worship service, and we experience the means of grace, and we are built up as the people of God as we hear and respond to and celebrate God's mercy for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then as we go from here, we leave the worship service, but we don't leave worship behind Everywhere your body goes, everything your body does is an opportunity for this worshipful sacrifice to God. When I was a kid, I remember thinking, I, I'm realizing the older I get how strange a lot of my, the things I thought were, but when I was a kid, I remember thinking, what could I get God for Christmas to thank him? You know, my kids are making Christmas lists, and um, we knew that Christmas was Jesus' birthday. Seems fitting we'd get him something for that. And I remember thinking, what could I get God? Uh, my Trinitarian theology was still kind of forming at the time. And I remember thinking, socks. Socks seem really fitting. I don't know why. They were the white long socks that had red or blue at the top, and you could get a pair that had both colors. Those seemed like a fitting gift to give to God as thanks for all that he had done in sending Jesus. And then I remember thinking, but how do I get them to God? And do I just leave them under the tree? And so that idea just got left. What I didn't know then is that Romans 12, 1 and 2 was in my Bible. Because what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is really saying is, there's something that we can give to God. Not in a way that he at all would have to repay us, 
but in a way of thanksgiving to him for all that he's done. In a way that says this is exactly what's fitting and right and appropriate for you as my people to give. And it's this worshipful service. And notice that there's no Sunday to Monday gap. Everything we do can be worshipful. And I know, you know, on a Sunday it can be hard to even think about all that this encompasses, but just humor me for a moment of what the practice is like of putting worshipful before everything that we're going to do as we go from this place. That we go out Monday through Friday or Saturday into worshipful work. That we lay our heads down at night seeking worshipful rest. That we dedicate our time to worshipful studying, worshipful driving, worshipful appointment keeping, worshipful diaper changing, worshipful sports playing or sports watching, worshipful lunch breaks, worshipful dishwashing, worshipful meal preparing, worshipful grocery shopping, worshipful family member calling, friend texting, relationship engaging. All of it, God says, can be pleasing to him. But how does that happen, right? That, that's nice to say. <laughs> but then Paul says, still in verse 1 there, here's how it happens. It goes back to the first word of that command. Present your bodies. Present them. And this is really Paul picking up again on what he talked about back in chapter 6. He's talked about presenting our bodies before. And do you remember what he said? The way that we present our bodies to God is by no longer presenting our members or our body parts as instruments that do the bidding of sin and that do the bidding of wickedness but instead saying, how do I take every part of my body, every member of this body, and instead present it to God? Say, here it is. How can it be used as something that's no longer in accord with the plans of sin and death and destruction? But how can my body be used in a way that's for you, that brings you glory, that's made in keeping with who it was made, how it was made to be? And so this presenting idea is really just taking, it's, it's asking that question in life. How do I take this body part that I'm using right now and say this can be used for God's glory instead of for the things of this world? Using our bodies this way, asking ourselves that question, and usually it's not even doing something different, but it's just thinking differently about what we're doing. One theologian calls this the liturgy of life. The liturgy of life is presenting our embodied existence to God worshipfully. You know, you have an order of service as you leave these doors. And it's not the one that we walk through here in the worship service. It's simply presenting your body to God. And so Paul says that the mercy-driven life is, first of all, embodied worship, but being a sacrifice to God in this way, it doesn't just magically happen, does it? This presenting doesn't just 
gets zapped into existence. There's a process, and Paul goes on to explain this process in verse 2. And and the process that he explains there is one of inner transformation. It's one of inner transformation. Paul gives two present passive commands, two things that are to continue happening in our lives. He says, don't be conformed, but instead be transformed. But before we get to applying those commands, we have to first understand the setting of those commands. And the the context of where we keep these commands is what he describes as this world, or um, really, I think it would be better translated, this age. The thing that we're not to be conformed to is this age. And as Christians, we live as a part of this present evil age, right? And Paul says that this age is passing away. But we've already been made a part of the age that is to come through the work of the Lord Jesus. And so we are these age-to-come people who are living in a this-age world that is passing away. And until Christ comes and this present evil age is no more, this age is the place where God has chosen that we would live every day of our lives in worshipful service to him. This is where it's lived out, the Christian life. And what Paul says as he gives us this command is he's reminding us that this age is constantly seeking to conform us to itself. What it's doing is it's, it's trying to press us more and more into its mold. You can think of the sand at the beach and putting it into a mold that looks like a castle that you, you try and set up. And that's the conforming process that this age is always at work in. And the mold that it's trying to conform us into is a mold that Paul has already described way back in Romans chapter 1. Now that's Months ago for us, it's just minutes ago for the church at Rome. But it's, it's this condition, the, the mold that it's seeking to conform us into is humanity's rebellion against God. And do you remember how Paul describes that? Worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Using our bodies in dishonorable ways. Not approving God's ways but instead being ruled by disapproving minds and approving what is wrong and approving those who practice wrong. That's that's the mold that the world is seeking to conform us into, to make us live more and more like this age people. But what Paul says here in verse 2 is that instead of being conformed to this way of thinking and living, believers can be transformed. They can be transformed by the renewing of their mind. This transformation process is really just an amazing idea to think about. Do you realize that when you became a believer, God began a work in you of changing you at the deepest level of your being? That word there, be transformed. It's the word from which we get the term metamorphosis. Kids, do you know what metamorphosis describes? Describes that little caterpillar who goes up into that cocoony thing and comes out as what? A butterfly, 
that level of transformation, similarity, and discontinuity is as extensive as what God is doing in us, inwardly now and one day outwardly through glorification. That transformation term is the same term we heard in our scripture reading, where Paul is describing the Spirit of God working within us to transform us from the fallen glory of which we once were, now to the glory of being restored into the image of Christ, far more beautiful even than any butterfly. That's what God is at work doing in us daily, Paul says. But how does this happen? How does this transformation happen? He says, by the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. Christianity brings together body and soul, and they're interrelated. And here we see that our bodies can be offered in worshipful service to God, but so much of what drives that is this inner transformation of the renewing of our minds. And our mind refers to our practical reasoning. Our mind refers to our moral consciousness of how we see and understand the world and then respond. When we hear the word mind, we should think of not only what we know, but what we see. (laughs) How we see God and how we see the world. And it's interesting that Paul brings up the word mind here in chapter 12, because back in Romans chapter 1, he really highlighted that the depravity of our minds is what sets into motion so much wrongdoing. In Romans 1.28, he says, And since they did not fit, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased or unapproved. It's, he's using the same root word there for what we're going to talk about. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. But you see, in contrast to the condition of fallen humanity with these unapproved minds, Paul says that God is at work renewing our minds, changing them from what they were to what they were really made to be. And what's the result of renewing our minds? Paul spells it out that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You see, he's holding out a contrast here. In contrast to this fallen condition where you have this debased mind that doesn't approve the will of God, but instead is responding constantly to the opposite of the will of God, here the renewed mind is increasingly able to discern or to approve what God's will is. And when we hear that phrase, God's will, it's not referring to the sovereign outworking of all things, the secret things of God that we, uh, we don't know until they happen. Instead, it's speaking of God's moral will. And Paul explains it right there with such a great summary. What is good and acceptable and perfect. You see what Paul is saying here? That by the work of the Spirit, God is so changing, transforming us inwardly that we can come to more and more look at a situation and know how God views it and what would be his will for us as we respond in that situation in a way that would show embodied worship and praise. That's a pretty amazing 
process that God is doing. It's hard for us to comprehend how extensive the corruption of the fall really has been to us as people. Uh, Paul gets it, and that's why he's unpacking it here. But I think a helpful illustration could be that it's like in the fall, a virus came over the entire operating system of our minds. A computer virus that just went through and corrupted every file. And what it means is that all of the inputs that our mind receives from our embodied existence, all of those inputs have even been distorted along the way. And and what that virus has done is it's taken us, instead of those who bring glory to God, it's reconfigured it so that the output that comes from us, instead of being toward God, is away from God and against God. But Paul says that what has been so distorted in the fall, this operating system that's gone astray, this debased, this unapproved mind, by God's work is now being renewed. And as Paul describes what has happened in salvation, the virus has been removed by the work of Christ. We are no longer in the flesh and sin no longer has mastery over us. But now in this ongoing process by the Spirit, through the Word of God, the files that were all corrupted are one by one being rewritten so that they are both perceiving things as they were meant to perceive and responding as we were meant to respond. You see, we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds to think and respond as age-to-come people instead of people of this age. Well, what is this um, don't be conformed, but be transformed process look like? It looks like a lot of things. I mean, how do you describe the entirety of sanctification in a sermon when you're already significantly in? (laughs) Well, you think about how much time you have remaining and what you'd like to say. Um, I I think there are four things that would be helpful for us just to highlight about this. Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind process. The first one is this, that transformation involves saying no. Transformation involves saying no. Part of what Paul highlights here is that every moment of every day, This age is seeking to squeeze us into a mold of thinking and being. And some of that means that we would do bad things, right? And so some of it is just saying no to wrong ways of life that aren't compatible for a Christian. But there's a lot more that's going on there, and it's a lot more subtle usually than just the outward ways of doing things. That conforming pressure is just as interested with getting us to think like this age than it is with getting us to do this age kind of things. And I'm not sure we're always aware of that. I think it can be easy as Christians to just focus on, am I doing the bad things? And not realize that every time I pick up my phone or I look at a screen, that that has been built and put together and there are humans and computers behind the scenes working, that that would conform me into a way of thinking. 
And we think about the process of renewing our minds, and that's happening through God's word and as we gather with his people. And if we think about how, how little that happens and then realize how much all of life is conforming us and shaping and discipling us through messages of this world thinking that doesn't quite fit with age to come thinking and living, then it really causes us to pause and maybe say no to certain things, right? Sometimes it's full-on saying no to certain types of activity, but sometimes it's also just saying no to the amount of the conforming things. And sometimes it's just saying no to the way it's trying to get us to think and use things. We are just swimming in an environment that is conforming us to thinking that the good gifts from God are to be consumed. And in consuming everything, we will somehow be okay. But scripture tells us something different. It says the good gifts of God aren't to be rejected but they're to be enjoyed with thanksgiving, in moderation, in a way that's worshipful instead of in a way that's looking to them as the creature to be worshipped. And so some of the saying no is just saying, am I knowingly or unknowingly giving myself over to these ongoing pressures of conformity and just absorbing the way that this age thinks about stuff the way this age thinks about morals, the way this age is constantly trying to get us to be part of this tribe or that tribe, when in reality the things of the kingdom usually don't fit neatly in either of those things. And so part of not being conformed is seeing what we are um, pressured to be conformed into and saying no to it to some degree. But secondly, transformation also involves more than just saying no. It involves more than just saying no. You know, when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7 about how he envisions that we would live in this age as believers, what he says is, I expect you to be engaged in the things of this world without being engrossed by the things of this world. You see, we can um, hear that transformation involves not being conformed, and we can hear that as just saying no to everything. And instead, the whole context of this is a context of worship. And worship is a matter of where is your heart as you're engaging that thing. Is my use of these things, is my engagement with other people, is my life in this world one that's oriented toward the worship of God? Or is it oriented toward the worship of self and consuming? And this passage actually helps us ask interesting questions of the things that we're engaging in. You see, it's not just saying no, but it's, it's looking rightly and seeing the world as God wants us to see it and, and, and in accord with God's will, which is what? Good and acceptable and perfect. And so as we think about engaging rightly in this world, as we think about being transformed in this life, part of that involves looking around at everything and saying, what about this is good? 
What about this is part of God's design? What are good goods to be enjoyed in this life as gifts from God? What is good that we say yes to? But then second, what is acceptable? And, and part of that is, what about what is being held out to us in this earthly existence is actually unacceptable and not pleasing to God? How are the solutions that are held forth incomplete? How is the indulgence in these things not compatible with a life that's oriented toward God himself? So what is the good? What is acceptable? And then the last one is, what is perfect about this? And perfect, that term there, when I think of perfect, I think of just um, getting a perfect score on a test, like you got every answer right. Um, The word perfect there carries more the idea of being complete. It's more the idea of things working the way that they're supposed to be. And so as we seek to be engaged in this world and and transformed by the renewing of our mind, it calls us to, to look at the things that we engage in and say, what will this look like in perfection? What will it look like to eat in a glorified way? What will it look like to relate to someone else in glorified, perfect existence? And how can I orient my life more toward that way of being and existing and engaging and less the way that the world is trying to conform me to that is far from the completeness of God's plan of how we would enjoy his world in a worshipful way. And so transformational living involves saying no, but it involves more than saying no. And then there are two more and I'll go more quickly through these. But transformation involves mental energy. When we think about it, transformation involves mental energy. It is hard work to renew our minds. It takes learning and unlearning, and both are hard. It takes learning as we come again and again to God's word, as we hear it preached, as we hear it taught, that we better come to understand God's ways, learning God's ways. And and that's why we put such an emphasis on the preaching and teaching that happens here. That's why Sundays are so important, as in discipleship hour and in the preaching of the word, um, it's showing for us the things we need to learn about God's ways. And it involves the mental activity of processing through what it looks like to live in a transformed way. But it not only involves learning, it also involves unlearning. Because we, by nature, have already been conformed to this age. (laughs) And we're having to unlearn a lot of those conformed practices, aren't we? unlearn the ways we view people and stuff and money and and just all the things we have just absorbed. But it's not just unlearning the things of the world, it's also sometimes unlearning the things that were the simple answers that we first came to in the faith. And coming to re-examine in light of what we see Scripture saying, are there ways in which ways I thought about those things as a Christian were not complete? not perfect, not really dealing with the robustness of how God wants me to think and interact with his people and the world and my neighbors. And so renewing our minds through transformation, it involves mental energy. And can I just tell you personally, 
it's an unsettling process, isn't it? I know for myself, as I've progressed in the Christian life and I'm still a baby in it, um, I was hoping that when I arrived at Calvinism, I could stop learning. (laughs) Cool, the Reformed view has everything figured out. Now my mind is renewed and now I just need to apply these things. And it's unsettling to learn that until glory, we will be learning and unlearning as our minds are renewed and God is transforming us. So it's an unsettling process, and also it can be a very lonely process. It is not a cool or welcomed thing right now in a world that's holding forth you're either on this side or this side for you to say, you know what? I see what you're saying here, and I see what you're saying here, and this is incomplete, and this is incomplete, but God's word holds out something better. They say, get out of here. You're either here or you're here. And many of us can feel just so out of place in the world. Like we, we just don't fit. And, and there's a real sense in which that's true. And so the thing that can happen, though, is sometimes we come to the church thinking, this is the place where everyone will just think like me. And I won't have to feel that tension. And what Paul's going to go on to say is, no, that's not the case. Christians are going to think differently about things. But... Christians can all be committed to the renewing of our minds and the learning and the unlearning of a life that glorifies God in the midst of the complexities in this amazingly unified way that also has a diversity of culture and experience and wisdom. And so it's an amazing thing, this hard work of transformation. And so transformation involves mental energy, but then finally transformation is more than just intellectual. Transformation is more than just intellectual. There's a tendency, I think, in churches like ours, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but tell me if you ever think this way. If I just could read enough books, I would be transformed. Do you see what that's doing? It's making transformation all about the mental and the intellectual. It's hearing transformation and renewing our minds as information processing. But what's going on here as Paul speaks about transformation is that it isn't just mental, it's moral. We could learn all the things from the Bible that we need to know But what he's speaking of, of discerning the will of God, is that by experience and embodied existence, both in the church and the world, we come to see what it is. Yes, we learn. Yes, we learn truth, but it sends us out. And that's why things like community groups and being in each other's lives as believers and being in your neighbor's lives is so important because it's there that the information that we learn in our minds becomes welded to an understanding of what is God's will then for me to wisely and worshipfully engage with people in God's world. And so it's more than just mental. And it's not just intellectual. Sinclair Ferguson says that coming to understand God's will isn't merely intellectual, it's actually effectual that coming to understand God's will at its core 
is that I come to love the things that God loves. I come to hate the things that God hates. I see the world as God sees it, and I respond to the world as God would respond. I hear you. It's been a lot. <laughs> if that makes you tired, you're uh, in good company. Um, <laughs> So it's this ongoing process of being transformed, of coming to more and more be age-to-come people. And um, I want to close with point three, which is really just a conclusion, so don't get scared. But it really takes us back to where this begins. That it's, it's not just embodied worship, it's not just mental renewal, but it's all mercy dependence. It's mercy dependence from start to finish. Um, It's so easy for me, and I'd imagine it's easy for you, that as you've listened to the last 30 minutes of this, it just sounds like a to-do list, a checklist, a way to just have to learn more stuff and do different things. And there's a sense in which it is a call to all of that. But it's all based on the mercy of God. Have you ever wondered why God did it like this? Why didn't God just zap us into transformed, glorified people? There are many days I wish he would have, because this is really hard. It's really tiring. I think I have yet, maybe I have and I've just blocked it out of my mind, but I don't recall a single conversation with a Christian who's satisfied with his or her progress in the Christian life and says, yep, I've arrived and I'm just waiting for the Lord to return. No, it is a fight. It is a labor to be renewed and transformed until glory. And so I don't know all of the reasons why God didn't just zap us into glorified existence, but Paul says in summary here that it's because of the mercies of God. God delights to show mercy, and he designed our sanctification in such a way that it would be shown again and again. God has orchestrated all of human history so that he would show mercy to disobedient sinners. And he's at work transforming us each moment of the day in a way that demands mercy upon mercy as we make some progress and then we fall and we get back up again and we need mercy. And all the while, what is happening throughout that entire process, whether we're aware of it or not, God's mercy is raining down on us every moment of every every day. His mercies, he says, are new every morning. God is transforming us like this because he loves to show mercy. And he's transforming us like this because it's good for us to need God's mercy. The gospel we believe is all of grace. And yet so often we're tempted toward pride and self-sufficiency but God has designed the Christian life in such a way that we have to realize every day, I'm not a part of God's family because I'm doing so well. I'm a part of his family. I'm one of his beloved children because God loves to show mercy and he's showing it to me right now and he will show it to me the next minute as well. God delights to show mercy. It's good for us to need mercy 
And then finally, isn't that what our neighbors need as well? Our neighbors don't need people who have it all together or who just withdraw from everything so that we can try and live out this like perfect life with none of this age around us. Our neighbors need people who are learning to see things how God really intended them to be. People who moment by moment are dependent upon the mercy of God. People who love God's mercy and people who by God's mercy are being changed and to people who show that mercy to sinners just like us. And so I don't know why, all the reasons why God did it this way, but I think those make a lot of sense. He wants us to live a mercy-driven life. Every moment of every day, everywhere our bodies go, and in everything they do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help in all of this. We thank you for the grace that you lavish upon us. We come and we ask for it afresh. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, transform us more and more into people who live and think and love like our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.